This is Ron Stockton. This is the fifth podcast on the Gaza War. I think what happened on October 7th and in the aftermath are historic events. They go far beyond the mowing the grass mini-wars between Israel and Hamas. Something is fundamentally different. And if you're interested, I want to help you understand what is happening. The first two podcasts focused on the events of October 7th and the aftermath. One was written three days after the events, one three weeks after the events. The third and fourth podcasts were on the South African charge of genocide filed against Israel with the High Court of Justice in The Hague and the court's provisional response later that month. This will be my fifth podcast. It focuses upon the Hamas document called Our Narrative, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. That document explains what they did and why, and what they want. I was not aware that Hamas had issued an official explanation of their reasoning, but once I realized there was such a narrative, I realized I had to offer you a summary. It has not been hard to hear the Israeli narrative. Anyone watching the U.S. news or reading our newspapers would hear the Israeli perspective frequently and eloquently expressed by the various Israeli spokespersons and the American groups committed to supporting Israel, such as the Anti-Defamation League, have also been very active, although their focus has been more on condemning protesters such as the Jewish Voice for Peace and Students for Justice in Palestine, and on stifling protests on American campuses. In Israel itself, the public has turned strongly against Prime Minister Netanyahu. His Likud party has been reduced to a small splinter of right-wing support, and most Israelis think he should step down and go away. They blame him for not protecting them. And now Netanyahu has openly challenged his major international ally, Joe Biden. He has thumbed his nose at Biden, at Biden's call for a negotiated settlement regarding a Palestinian state. Some even said he stuck his thumb in Biden's eye. Netanyahu appears to think that his supporters in America will bring Biden under control. Biden will be coerced into supporting him regardless. But what Netanyahu appears not to recognize is that the U.S. has a dog in this fight. The American interest lies in having a strong, secure Israeli state living in peace in the heart of the Arab Islamic world. At the current time, that is not the case. And we Americans have been dragged into a struggle in which escalation seems possible. As I write, this war has spread to seven different fronts. Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Yemen. Turkey and Jordan are also somehow getting entangled, but not yet actively involved. And whatever is happening in Pakistan is hard to identify from the outside. Those who listen to my podcast know that I taught a course on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for 40 years. I gave my students some rules, as I called them, for how to navigate this material, which so often in my country is entangled in unhelpful rhetoric and ideological barbed wire. My main rule of good studenting was that until you can summarize someone's perspective to their satisfaction and defend it from its critics, you do not understand it well enough to know if you agree or disagree. Let me repeat that. Until you can summarize someone's perspective to their satisfaction 
and defend it from its critics. You do not understand it well enough to know if you agree or disagree. My students love that rule, which freed them to think independent of their own perspectives and preferences. Another rule was that if you want to understand the Israeli position, you should not ask an Arab, and if you want to understand the Palestinian position, you should not ask a Jew, and you should not ask me. Go to the sources, the statements or documents, the primary source material, as we call it. Let the parties speak for themselves. It was then a great surprise when I discovered a document put out by Hamas explaining their logic. Why they did what they did, what they did not do, and what they want. It is called Our Narrative, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. It is 18 pages long and is available on the internet. What I would like to do is summarize the key points of that document for you. When I ask my students to read a document or position paper, especially one with which they might disagree, I would ask them to flag those passages that surprise them. Is there anything that is inconsistent with what you had believed or expected before you read the document? And when I would ask students to make a summary of a document, I would tell them that if I saw any evidence that they liked or disliked what they read, that would count against them. Okay, let's pause. I can hear someone out there saying, this is what you expect from those professors. They tell students what to think and will not allow them to reach their own conclusion. In fact, my approach was the exact opposite. My assignment always required <clears throat> that at the end of their summary, they write a non-graded supplementary paragraph or so called personal reaction. That is the point where they were required to say what they thought. Students like that distinction between detached analysis and personal position. The separation of insight and opinion freed them to think. Well, now you know how I would have presented this to my students had I still been in the classroom. So let's plunge into the presentation of this document and of the Hamas perspective. The document is undated, but it appeared in January of 2024. But first, let me make a point. For some people, what happened on October 7th was so traumatic that hearing the Hamas perspective on those events might be very distressing. If you're one of those, please recognize that turning off this podcast is not dishonorable. Don't upset yourself. There are other informative podcasts that might be better for you. Now, regarding what surprised me, I want to start with a statement that pushed me personally back on my heels. What did you expect us to do? This was so shocking because it shifted the focus away from Hamas and onto the reader. It is so easy to express horror at what happened on October 7th that we seldom pause to think of the rules of good studenting that require us to understand someone else's actions from their perspective. I'm going to put this question on hold until later when I'm able to discuss the context for when it appeared, but keep it in mind. What did you expect us to do? A second surprise involved two points about the music concert. The document says that when the Hamas combatants arrived at the music concert, where 364 civilians were killed, they arrived without any prior knowledge of the festival. I had wondered about that. Israeli concerts are not advertised in Gaza. 
Of course, Hamas could listen in on the Israeli media, but still, was that likely? And the statement did not say that the leadership was unaware. It said the combatants were unaware. The Hamas narrative also says that their soldiers were given strict instructions regarding the treatment of civilians. But they acknowledged that perhaps there were accidents or faults in the border areas in the chaos following the collapse of the Israeli defenses. I will leave this dangling, but it did make me think. The document notes that the Israeli security forces were caught off guard by the attacks. This was discussed in the earlier podcast about the attacks themselves. Hamas overran several Israeli security positions, including the communications center, which they destroyed. The Israelis were weakened because they had moved units from the South Gaza Command to the West Bank to bring extremist settlers under control. The only response they could make in the immediate aftermath of the attack was with helicopters. They opened fire on Hamas fighters and inadvertently on, quote, the participants at the festival, which they could not distinguish from the air. They, quote, killed, burned, and destroyed Israeli areas. The Israeli press reported that the Israeli military, quote, struck over 300 targets in areas surrounding the Gaza Strip. In the process, Hamas says that the, quote, Israeli air raids led to the death of nearly 60 Israeli captives. The narrative also notes that many Israeli settlers in towns that border on Gaza were actually armed soldiers who clashed with Palestinian fighters. Let me make a point here. It is true that that Israel has something close to universal conscription for both men and women. To say that, quote, everyone under 30 is a soldier has some truth to it. But under international law, soldiers not in combat cannot be treated as legitimate targets. If men living in those border areas grabbed their weapons and began firing, they would become legitimate targets, otherwise not. And family members would definitely not have been legitimate targets. This brings us to something I had wondered about. The narrative says that many of the Israeli civilian fatalities were killed by the Israeli forces. There's a conspiracy theory out there so bizarre that I was inclined not to give it any credibility to this statement. Of course, some Israelis may have been killed by accident, but there would not have been enough to make a difference. And I've read statements that this was a false flag operation in which the Israelis themselves permitted Hamas to attack and then contributed to the killing to justify the destruction of Gaza, or maybe to salvage Netanyahu's collapsing career. But this was too close to the conspiracy theory that FDR had known in advance about Pearl Harbor, but allowed Japan to strike anyway so the country would permit him to go to war. Blah. But, but, there was an argument that I had not considered. Here it is. The Israelis were so caught off guard by the attack that they were unable to mobilize their defense forces. Of course, this was true. I discussed it in my earlier podcast and why it was that they had transferred so many soldiers away from the Southern Command to the West Bank. The Hamas document says that Hamas was surprised at the collapse of the Israeli defenses. 
And here is the argument that somehow makes sense. The Israelis were so surprised that all they could do was send in helicopter gunships and begin firing on Hamas soldiers from the air. And from the air, it was hard to tell the difference between an Israeli and a Palestinian. We all remember that the initial fatality figure released by the Israelis was 1,400 people. But then it was dropped to under 1,200 people. They said their initial figure had included many Hamas combatants mistaken for Israeli fatalities. The Hamas narrative argues that just as they were killing Palestinians from the air, they were also killing Israelis from the air. This was especially true in the area of the music concert. This is not to say that Hamas did not kill a large number of civilians. What it does say is that many of those civilian fatalities were killed by Israeli fire. Call it what you will, friendly fire, collateral damage, accidental targeting, whatever. This argument surprised me because it made sense. Another surprise was the frequent mention of the 1993 Oslo Accords, not in a negative or hostile way, but in a positive way. At one point, the document says that Oslo could have led to a Palestinian state, but the Israelis sabotaged it. I know that there was no commitment to a Palestinian state in that Oslo document, but Arafat believed that it was on the table and that Palestinian freedom was just a stone's throw away, as he put it. I also thought myself that there was a trajectory in that agreement that was leading in a certain direction, even if Rabin was resistant, but we will never know. What we, the public, do know is that the Hamas Charter of 1988 emphatically denied the legitimacy of, his, of the Israeli state and promised to reverse it. That charter also promised to provide security to Jews within an Islamic entity. There's a separate podcast on that charter if you're interested, so we need not discuss it here. Anyway, it was replaced with an updated charter in 2017, and Hamas leaders have said the 1988 version was written in the midst of war and should not be seen as the final word. I would like to divert for a minute to explain the Hamas position on the idea of a Palestinian state side by side with a Jewish state. This is the so-called two-state solution. The Islamic thinking is that Palestine is an Islamic waqf, W-A-Q-F. That means an endowment in the sense that a million-dollar donation to a university to support scholarships is an endowment. The university is not allowed to divert the money to pay for light bills. It must remain true to the intent of the donor, which in the case of Palestine would be the commitment of Allah or God. From an Islamic perspective, God has sent prophets to the earth in different forms and in different ages. Those prophets were sent to everyone on the earth, even those outside of their cultural or language boundaries. The mistake of the Jews is to believe that the prophets sent to the Hebrew or Israelite people were sent to them exclusively. God does not do such things. But to say that a Jewish prophet was sent only to the Jews would be a violation of the true faith. To recognize Israel as a Jewish state would mean that you're saying that those who are following the biblical or Hebrew prophets are a separate people or a separate nation. Hamas could never accept that. 
But there is always a way. In the past, Hamas has offered diplomatic ways out of this theological trap. They have offered Israel an extended truce, alternately described as open-ended or indefinitely renewable, or 50 years. Also, they said that while they would never recognize Israel as a Jewish state, they would accept the national consensus. If the Palestinian Authority worked out a settlement with the Israelis, and if the Palestinian people accepted that settlement, perhaps through a referendum, Hamas would not oppose it. Perhaps that is what they were thinking when they suggested that the Oslo Accords had offered a promise of a settlement, but the Israelis had destroyed it. A separate issue involves the allegation that Hamas combatants beheaded babies. The document takes strong exception to that. I myself downloaded the front page of a British tabloid that proclaimed that there were 40 murdered babies. This apparently originated with an Israeli reporter, Nicole Zedek of I-24 News, who reported that 40 babies had been killed. She later tried to backtrack, saying that an Israeli soldier had told her that number, but she had not seen the evidence. But the damage had been done. Anyone who has listened to my podcast on numbers should have been skeptical about that number, 40. It is often a symbolic number to represent something wicked or evil, Alibaba and the 40 thieves, the 40 suitors who came to steal away the wife of Ulysses, 40 years in the wilderness. But even then, the evidence is very sketchy and questionable. Who actually saw those babies? The IDF is hesitant to say more than that they have heard reports and do not feel it possible to investigate given the circumstances. It was the Prime Minister's office that appeared most vigorous in insisting on the veracity of those reports. President Biden also said to a meeting with Jewish leaders that he had himself seen photos and repeated his allegation, even when asked for evidence which the White House did not provide. But there are two practical issues that make confirmation difficult. These are not from the narrative, but must be considered. The first is that Jewish custom, as with Islamic custom, requires swift burial, ideally within the day. This means there could be no autopsy or official confirmation of the status of the body. The second issue has to do with the use of RPGs. Rocket-propelled grenades are capable of blowing off the head of a person, especially a small person. If a head was removed, was it from a blade or from an RPG? The Hamas narrative says that their soldiers were given strict orders regarding the treatment of civilians. But they acknowledge that perhaps there were accidents or faults, those are their words, on the border areas in the chaos following the collapse of the Israeli defenses. Well, those were to me surprises. Now, let me walk you through the narrative document. The narrative begins with a common theme. The PLO charter refers to it as a caravan of martyrs who have laid down their lives and will continue to do so until their land is free. Quote, the battle of the Palestinian people against occupation and colonialism did not start on October 7th, the Hamas document says, but started 105 years ago, including 30 years of British colonialism and 75 years of Zionist occupation. 
1918, the Palestinian people owned 98.5% of the Palestinian land and represented 92% of the population on the land of Palestine. While the Jews who were brought to Palestine in mass immigration campaigns in coordination between the British colonial authorities and the Zionist movement managed to steal, seize control of not more than 6% of the land and be 3% of the population prior to 1948 when the Zionist entity was announced on the historic land of Palestine. Okay, let me pause for a minute. This 3% population figure is either a typo or a fabrication. In 1947, the Jews in Palestine were about 30% of the population and held 5 to 6% of the land. Given how cautious and nuanced this narrative document is, I'm inclined to think this might be a typo. 3% accidentally entered instead of 30%, but I will leave this to your best judgment. Let's continue the passage. Quote, at that time, the Palestinian people were denied the right of self-determination, and the Zionist gangs engaged in an ethnic cleansing campaign against the Palestinian people aimed at expelling them from their lands and areas. As a result, the Zionist gangs seized control by force of 77% of the land of Palestine, where they expelled 57% of the people of Palestine and destroyed over 500 Palestinian villages and towns and committed dozens of massacres against the Palestinians, which culminated in the establishment of the Zionist entity in 1948. Moreover, in a continuation of the aggression, the Israeli forces in 1967 occupied the rest of Palestine, including the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and Jerusalem, in addition to Arab territories around Palestine." Unquote. Uh, of course, that refers to the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan province, parts of Egypt and Syria, respectively. The narrative says that nonviolent alternatives to addressing these injustices, such as asking the United Nations to intervene, have been blocked. Quote, the Israeli violations and brutality were documented by many UN organizations and international human rights groups, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, and even documented by Israeli human rights groups. However, these reports and testimonies were ignored, and the Israeli occupation is yet to be held accountable. For example, on October 29, 2001, Israeli ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan, insulted the UN system by tearing up the report for the UN Human Rights Council during an address to the General Assembly and threw it in a dustbin before leaving the podium. Yet he was appointed the following year, 2002, to the post of Vice President of the UN General Assembly. One of the main forces blocking a resolution to the conflict is that the big powers, especially the United States, run interference for Israel. Quote, the U.S. administration and its Western allies have always been treating Israel as a state above the law. They provide it with the needed cover to maintain prolonging the occupation and cracking down on the Palestinian people, and also allowing Israel to exploit such a situation, to expropriate further Palestinian lands, and to Judaize their sanctities and holy sites. 
Despite the fact that the UN has issued more than 900 resolutions over the past 75 years in favor of the Palestinian people, Israel rejected to abide by any of these resolutions. And the U.S. veto was always present at the UN Security Council to prevent any condemnation to Israel's policies and violations. That is why we see the U.S. and other Western countries complicit and partners to the Israeli occupation in its crimes and in the continued suffering of the Palestinian people. As for the peaceful settlement process, quote-unquote, despite the fact that the Oslo Accords signed in 1993 with the Palestinian Liberation Organization stipulated the establishment of a Palestinian independent state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, Israel systematically destroyed every possibility to establish the Palestinian state through a wide campaign of settlement construction and Judaization of the Palestinian lands in the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem. The backers of peace process, after 30 years, realized that they have reached an impasse and that such a process had catastrophic results for the Palestinian people. The Israeli officials confirmed at several occasions their absolute rejection of the establishment of a Palestinian state. Just one month before Operation Al-Aqsa flood, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu presented a map of a so-called New Middle East, depicting Israel stretching from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, including the West Bank and Gaza. The entire world at that General Assembly were silent towards his speech, full of arrogance towards the rights of the Palestinian people, unquote. Uh, as a side note, I can confirm that the official government map of Israel, available in the Jerusalem map office, shows Israel as including all the Palestinian mandate with no acknowledgement of the Palestinian territories. Now back to the narrative. There is a threat to the Holy Mosque in Jerusalem. This is considered the third holiest site in Islam, a place visited by the Prophet Muhammad according to tradition. Quote, the Israeli Judaization plans to the Blessed Al-Aqsa Mosque is its temporal and spatial division attempts, as well as the intensification of the Israeli settlers' incursions into the Holy Mosque. Let's pause for a minute for some context. Those of you who follow this conflict know that under the current Israeli government, with several extremist religio-nationalist cabinet ministers, there have been increasing incursions into the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound by militant religious Zionists. Some groups openly talk of tearing down the mosque and rebuilding the temple. Anyone who walks around the Christian or Jewish quarters of Jerusalem can find photos and models of that temple with the mosque erased. Also, the Israeli military has more than once entered the compound and the mosque itself at the beginning of Ramadan to cut the loudspeaker wires used to broadcast the call to prayer. This has produced clashes and blood. In 2021, Hamas gave the Israeli forces a time certain at which they should have withdrawn their soldiers from the compound or shelling would begin. The Israelis did not withdraw and shelling began. 
This was the terrible 2021 Hamas-Israeli war that produced mass destruction within Gaza. In 2022, the situation was repeated. Militant religio-Zionists marching around the compound, Israeli soldiers cutting the wires and entering the mosque itself. This time Hamas did not conduct massive shelling. This was the dog that didn't bark, the sign that something was going to happen that we on the outside could not see, but could anticipate. The document lists a series of other issues that demand immediate attention. Let me just read some of those for you. <clears throat> the steps to, quote, annex the entire West Bank and Jerusalem. Quote, the thousands of Palestinian detainees in Israeli jails. Quote, the expansion of the Israeli settlements across the West Bank, as well as the daily violence perpetrated by settlers against Palestinians and their properties. Quote, the 7 million Palestinians living in extreme conditions in refugee camps and other areas. Quote, the failure of the international community and the complicit superpowers to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. They also mention the apartheid regime in Jerusalem and the West Bank. I have a separate podcast on that concept, so I will not discuss it here. After this list of offenses and the failed efforts to generate support comes that powerful question. What did the world expect the Palestinian people to do? To keep waiting and to keep counting on the hopeless, the helpless United Nations? Or to take the initiative in defending the Palestinian people, lands, rights, and sanctities, knowing that the Defense Act is a right enshrined in international laws, norms, and conventions? That is the blunt question. What did you expect us to do? Hamas insists that based on this information, what happened on October 7th was, quote, a necessary step and a normal response. We targeted the Israeli military sites and sought to arrest the enemy's soldiers to pressure the Israeli authorities to release the thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli jails through a prisoner exchange deal. Our goal was, quote, to avoid harm to civilians, especially children, women, and elderly people. This is a religious and moral commitment by the Al-Aqsa Brigade's fighters. That's their combat unit. We reiterate that the Palestinian resistance was fully disciplined and committed to the Islamic values during the operation that the Palestinian fighters only targeted the occupation soldiers and those who carried weapons against our people. The Palestinian fighters were keen to avoid harming civilians, despite the fact that the resistance does not possess precise weapons. In addition, if there was any case of targeting civilians, it happened accidentally. The document vigorously denies allegations of 40 beheaded babies, as I noted, and the mass rape. Maybe some false happened during Al-Aqsa Operation Al-Aqsa Flood's implementation due to the rapid collapse of the Israeli security and military system and the chaos caused along the border areas with Gaza. But that was not the policy. I have to comment on this point. I suspect Hamas sincerely believes this, that they have a moral army committed to the highest Islamic principles. 
just as the Israelis believe that they have, quote, the most moral army in the world, quote, Prime Minister Netanyahu. But in combat, when death becomes a reality, morals may fade. In the final section of the document, Hamas says what it wants. Palestine, as a member state of the International Criminal Court, has asked for an investigation into Israeli war crimes. It is faced by Israeli intransigence and threats to punish the Palestinians. The great powers, especially the U.S., Germany, Canada, and the U.K., resist an investigation as part of their ongoing effort to keep Israel as, quote, a state above the law with no liability or accountability. They affirm that, quote, the root cause of the conflict are the occupation and the denial of the right of the Palestinian people to live in dignity on their lands. Quote, we hail the free people of the world from all religious, ethnicities, and backgrounds who rally in all capitals and cities worldwide to voice their rejection to the Israeli crimes and massacres and to show their support for the rights of the Palestinian people and their just cause. The narrative finishes with an affirmation that Hamas is a resistance and liberation movement. It has no hostility to Jews as a religious group, but is resistant to Zionism as a political force. They affirm that resistance is the strategic approach and the only way to liberation. They ask rhetorically, has any nation been liberated from occupation without struggle, resistance, and sacrifice? They ask that, quote, the free peoples across the world, especially those nations who were colonized, support them. They call for, quote, a global solidarity movement to emphasize the values of justice and equality and the rights of the people to live in freedom and dignity. They also asked the superpowers, especially the U.S., the U.K., and France, among others, to stop providing the Zionist entity with cover from accountability. They say that Israel is planning a new Nakba, another wave of expulsions. And we, Hamas, are standing against it. We ask the world to support us in ending the occupation. That is the narrative of Al-Aqsa Flood. Thank you for listening.